You know, I really should come up with a starter for these podcasts, a little musical tie-in to make it seem professional-like, but uh, we're on, what, eight? So I think I'll give it some time before I do that uh, in the meantime. Hello, listener. How you doing? Um, thank you for, for joining me. Uh, today, I'm just going to talk about the planet, the Earth, and the way that modern man sees the Earth. I find it interesting that the climate change or global warming agenda has really taken hold, and I'm, I'm curious to see what that, what that says about us as a, as a society. Um, so, for starters, I don't think it needs any introduction, but modern climatology has predicted that temperatures will increase by two degrees Celsius over the next hundred years, or at this point, next 80 years, frankly. Um, And that corresponds to a few degrees Fahrenheit. This corresponds to about four degrees Fahrenheit, um, give or take a little bit. So um, not terribly much, but a significant change. And, and the idea would be that this is a global, global change. Um, this is what the climate models predict. Climate models, which, which are v- very rarely accurate, predict this uh, two degrees Celsius increase, four degree Fahrenheit increase in all global temperatures all year round um, in, in terms of an average over the next 80 years. And this corresponds generally to uh, increased a prediction of increased water levels and an increase in catastrophic events and an increase in uh, global displacement of peoples as people shift from their environments because their environments are changing. And of course, the the commonly accepted cause of this great evil is man, you know, and particularly the industrial and post-industrial man. Um, Somehow specifically the post-industrial man, because uh, he relies on industrial societies around the world. So I'm going to kind of break that down, right? The first civilizations were really structured around uh, the pasture animals, Right? The idea that you would have sheep or goats or cows. You, know, you could have these, these animals that you could breed and rely upon for survival. Right? That's where you start to get civilization, even more so in agriculture. Right? When you get the ability to farm, you can stay in one place for long periods of time. Right? Farming had a major effect on the way that civilizations ran. I mean, it actually allowed for civilizations to be no longer nomadic, right? And, you know, you could technically bandy words with me and say that a nomadic civilization isn't a civilization, but I would argue that it could be because you could still have hubs of trade. So when you have trade, then you don't necessarily need agriculture to build up a civilization. This would be your Bronze Age cultures, more or less. Um, but but beginning with something like, you know, later Greece, and Rome and you know the Middle Ages. This is these are agricultural societies that weren't very successful in terms of growth and expansion. And I know Rome was, but 
in terms of of improving their uh, productivity in these fields, they weren't terribly revolutionary. Uh, and the revolutions came in other ways. Uh, Rome was an inventor of fantastic road materials. So their transportation industry was much, much better than many civilizations before them. So they could conquer a much larger area and still control it. Uh, that's one of the things that the Romans did very, very well, uh, partially because of their uh, martial culture, that they needed to move their armies. So they wanted to be able to reliably move said armies. And... Um, those were so successful that they were used in future years by uh, post-Roman societies, post-Roman um, governments and, and cultures used that, and some still use them today. In the end of the Middle Ages, we find the agricultural revolution where uh, people begin to study how to grow things. Now, it doesn't all happen at once, but you begin to see an increase in productivity among the, the farmer population, and that really allows for a, a growth in the cities, right? Because you're, each farm is becoming more productive, so each farmer can provide more for other people, meaning there, a lower percentage of your population has to be farmers in order to sustain yourself, meaning those percentage of people who used to have to be farmers and are no longer farmers are freed up to do some other economic work. And so where would you do that? Well, you went to the cities. And suddenly cities had massive amounts of people to, who, were, who were doing different work uh, and investigating different things and, and, and trying out new industries uh, you saw changes uh, that would not have been possible uh, diseases that would not have been possible suddenly found you know a brand new breeding ground where you know european cities filled with decay and rot and dirtiness and you know horses and cows and pigs you know wildlife no, not wildlife domestic animals um, who were allowed to run free in the city streets were making everything filthy. And so you had the perfect breeding ground for germs. And these germs then spread to your population. And so your population died in droves, but was also reproducing at a massive rate. And so the general trend of the population was to increase. And with that increase, as has always been the case, with an increase in the human population productivity and economy increase. There's a direct connection between the increase in economic output in the 20th century and the increase in world population. And you could say one drove the other, but they were mutually um, functional. That when people stopped dying off because of these diseases, when we finally moved past and, and, and were able to heal these diseases and also clean up some of the cities, right? So we were moving the livestock out of the cities, then... Uh, people were able to live longer. Now, here's the question. Why did livestock start to leave the cities? Well, this was the next step, right? So we moved from, uh, you could say hunter-gatherers. I would say, you know, hunter-gatherer kind of fits then directly into the shepherd, right? A pasteurized uh, civilization into the agricultural civilization 
into an industrial civilization. And now the industrial civilization is taking the power of a large workforce and applying it to create new things, uh, to allow for low-skilled labor that could propagate um, out complex systems. So steel, automotives, planes, brand new types of weaponry and warfare. Complexity of the civilization increased because the, there was a, an available workforce that was freed from agricultural labor that had moved to the cities. In this world of surplus, when someone had the, these ideas to create these you know, new processes, they had the manpower to actually take the, put them into effect. And so then the cities became used for something else. Some of these, these tools then further improved other industries like agriculture. Right? With a tractor, you can do more than a, an ox, right? So, and, and then with a, uh, with a car, your effect on the public health is significantly less than with a horse, right? The negative effect of a horse on public health is greater than the negative effect of a car, right? A car is... It produces some emissions, yes, but a horse, right? Imagine if you have a horse dung all over the place, right? Think about the number of people we have in our cities today. That would be completely impractical with horses and carriages. Um, and it would have smelled awful, just, just miserable. Uh, in fact, this was a problem. This was a problem in the ancient world. Not the ancient, 100 years ago, um, 130 years ago, right? How do you deal with all of this dung, right? This is a massive problem. Well, the solution ended up being cars. Cars. Um, cars and um, streetcars and trains. Right? Things that the industrial world created uh, alleviated the burden on the environment that people lived in and allowed their public the public health to improve um, this combined with discoveries that were facilitated by the increased communication and education that comes from that that came from or, or comes from right? that was what the weird sound there was uh, the increased level of education and communication that come from an industrial world then breeds um, further exploration and study into things like Vaccines and antibiotics, further improving public health. And so as public health is increasing, lifespans are increasing, more people are able to live longer lives and explore new things. It also meant that new forms of warfare would occur. Um, the First and Second World Wars were the industrial wars. They were wars fought on an industrial scale by industrial populations um, using industrial weapons until the end. Um, you know, that very last war, that, that last battle of, the, of World War II was um, really the, the shining moment of the industrial war it was the atomic bomb. 
right? A, a, a weapon so powerful that it could do to a, a city with industrial tools what, uh, well, used to happen many, many years prior when, you know, you would sack a city, right? When you had to actually go in there and get your hands dirty in the past. And you also were able to take away with you the treasures of that city. The atomic bomb allowed for complete and utter annihilation and destruction on the scale of a sacking. Um, and that, uh, that changed the world. It was inevitable. It was it was a part of this exploration of the creation that occurred through the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and I think this is probably what then drove people to look into alternative uh, things, right? We know that the Internet came about as a desire, from a desire to create a nuclear-proof communication system, which is which is important in the case of nuclear war. Right? How do you build something that, that will endure through that? Right? You already had uh, telephone and uh, you know, other means of electrical communications. And electricity was already being used in things like lights. Uh, but the internet allowed for another revolution to occur. Right? As, as internet technologies became more and more important, electricity became more and more explored and better and better researched and what you get is the digital revolution right the fourth age of man as i would like to call it um, the fourth age of man where where suddenly we have the ability to make libraries out of silicon and store data in ways that we had not before remember things communicate things in ways that were unimaginable except at a local level in in previous ages and yet we had the ability to sustain a population that was significantly higher than those populations sustain a, a level of knowledge that we may never have had the ability to store before um, so suddenly we get this new and beautiful technology and once again the improvements that it allows for public health and uh, communication and industry and economy and you know the increases in lifespan that that could bring about were tremendous but something happens at the end of the 20th century a a cultural shift happens and the, the value of human life began to change. I wonder if some of this doesn't come from the industrial angst of beginning to see the suffering uh, inherent in the human condition, inherent in the growth of industry, inherent in people's lives, right? What the, the, the beauty of the agricultural society is that another person's suffering is far away from you. It's far away, and you really don't have to see it that much until you move to a city, and then, well, you're all in the same boat, right? Everyone's equally poor, right? The, the king of England probably didn't smell too much better than his, his citizens. Right? Monty Python does a fantastic job of that kind of idea uh, in Quest for the Holy Grail. There's a, some fantastic jokes there, you know? But 
but the actual disparity between people could not be very great. And you had people who were dirt poor, literally, and people who were um, poor. And because they were less poor than the others, their lives were seemingly better. Uh, by our standards, they would be in abject poverty, however. I mean, maybe with the land they owned a little bit better, but, but if they maintained their quality of life, a lot of them would be in abject poverty. And then a few of them generally would be where we consider the lower middle class right now in terms of what they could access, what they could do, um, and their, their general um, livelihoods, right? As you move further in time, as, as the societies come closer together and communication becomes closer and more people are around you, you are more aware of the suffering that is there. You are able to see what other people are going through and it actually affects you. You're actually able to spend a little bit of time being concerned about that person who's next to you because you aren't spending your entire life focused on yourself and just getting by. Um, and the digital age is really the 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 peak of this. You know, we so far, so far, uh, we have so much free time to think about so many things, and we are so affluent now, right? The the peak of affluence has moved significantly higher than it ever was, right? We can live our entire lives in very clean areas with clean water, clean air, uh, you know, reliably getting food on the table from the work that we do, uh, and also simultaneously being able to afford all the, or many of the luxuries of life, right? A smartphone isn't necessary, but most people can still afford it, right? Technically, all you need is a, is a flip phone at this point, and sometimes not even that, right? Um, local library has internet. And sometimes that's hard, but um, you, can get, you can get away with, with being poorer in the modern world and still live a very good life. The, the greatest issue is the issue of that there is um, a lot of affluence, you know, and, and it, it breeds uh, laziness, right? It breeds obesity, because then the question is, how hard are you willing to work to maintain what you have? How hard are you willing to uh, put out effort in order to give yourself more, in order to create a, an even better life for yourself and for your children? That's, that's where the question really comes with, it, with the world we're in today. Um, so in this world now, we have this conundrum. We have finally, finally gotten back to it. We have this conundrum where we have different areas of the world that are at different levels, right? The Western world, this would be Western Europe and America and Canada and Japan, as well as probably Singapore. It used to be Hong Kong, but you know we'll see what's going on with Hong Kong. Hong Kong's going through some stuff right now. All right, check out those protests, those of you who haven't. It's, it is very important, so um, quick pitch to them. Uh, they're fighting for their freedoms and being silenced at the same time uh, by a, well, a very, very powerful totalitarian state. Uh, but, but technically they are part of the, of the post-industrial world, right? the, digital, the digital age. 
and parts of China, parts of India, uh, parts of a lot of countries are in kind of this this type of state. Uh, but on the whole, it's the uh, the European diaspora and Japan, and or is it diaspora or diaspora? I'll look it up later. Those are those are the digital worlds, and then you have the industrial world. Um, China, India are your big ones, right? You get this this in other parts in Southeast Southeast Asia, um, Eastern Europe. Uh, these are these are cultures that are industrial that they they rely heavily on still that older model. Um, partially because of political issues uh, that in the Eastern Europe, you, you're still suffering from the bloc, uh, the, the communist bloc. And China is desperately trying to fight against the freedoms of its people. And by doing so is at least maintaining some level of, of uh, economy, and, but, but control over that, that limited state. India is a growing nation, but is has so many people that uh, you know, that transition is is a challenge, and it is a very strong level of prosperity because with a with a large population, you you end up with a very diverse uh, skill set for a lot of your people. So how do you take care of your lowest skilled laborers? Well, they have to do something, um, and with a with a country that densely packed, that there are a lot of those and. So the the lack of well, uh, in some regards, the lack of certain freedoms is, is also a, a limitation there. And then you have some technically pre-industrial societies, right? Sub-Saharan Africa is pre-industrial. They're still fighting for food and water. They're they're still fighting for the ability to have agriculture, and and that's tough. They're they're going through an economic uh, well, not economic, a, a demographic boom because they get so much money from overseas that they can actually afford that large population, which hopefully will lead to innovation and an expansion of their of their society and culture. Um, part of the reason I say that is, is as well is because a lot of those countries are majority Christian, which is which is a very interesting, reality but uh, as long as their populations increase their economy will increase as long as their economy increases there will be further opportunities for these people and their livelihood will be uh, enabled empowered to to be increased and that is a very that is a very very good thing but part of the problem then comes in in the fact that the environmental conditions of each of these scenarios are, are wildly different. For example, a pre-industrial society has a lot of dung problems because they have a lot of animals. <laughs> this is significantly more animals than in a, uh, even an industrial society. Right? An industrial society is going to have more smog than a post-industrial society, a digital society. A digital society will have a lot more garbage. So 
how do you mitigate the negative effects and how do you properly steward your part of the world? Now, see, there's, there's an assumption that I made there that comes into conflict with modern climatolog climatological philosophy. And that is that we are responsible for our part of the world, our corner of the globe. And I think there's, there's a lot of hyperbolic language being used by these groups who, whose science is borne out, right? The, the, the science is borne out, but the philosophy may be wrong, right? The idea that we have to save the planet, that we are causing catastrophic global climate change that we alone are empowered to, to save, right? First, first and foremost, let's, let's ignore this idea. Right? We, we don't fundamentally have the power to save the planet because the planet itself shouldn't be in any danger, any fundamental danger. Right? We got through the Cold War. If anything was going to kill the planet, it was going to be nuclear war. Right? I mean, that was probably the most likely thing. Now, now we're looking at something different. I understand. Right? But an increase in temperature is not going to destroy the planet. First of all, an increase in temperature might actually lead to an increase in the biodiversity of the planet. Sure, we're going to lose maybe a few polar bears. And we might lose a few penguins. At least uh, Antarctic penguins, right? But in Argentina, there are penguins that live on the coast there as well. So, you know, they don't need that kind of cold. Polar bears, yeah, polar bears, we might lose polar bears. All right, I'm okay with that. I'm sorry. I'm okay if the polar bears die. Can we save the rhinoceroses? Right? I want to save my fat unicorns more than I want to save polar bears. Um, one is more important to me than the other. I want to save polar bears. But I don't think we should destroy the potential of African cultures to become industrialized for the sake of polar bears. Right? I'm, reframing, I'm, I'm, I'm going to reframe the argument there. I don't think I should have to, to worry as much about a 12-foot increase in the water levels at the expense of the African civilization. Because I think that African civilization being permitted to suffer through industrialization is more important. That they should be given that freedom on a global scale. Right? We, shouldn't, we shouldn't try to restrict it, right? There are a lot of problems in those cultures right now, right? Corruption is a huge one. Um, war is another one, right? There's a war, civil war going on in South Sudan right now. Um, there's, there's, there's all sorts of cultural turmoil, but there is great potential. Why? Because it's a massive group of people. It's a massive group of people. And, and whenever you welcome in a large group of people into the economic sphere, you improve, in general, you improve things because you're allowing more uh, smart people to actually solve difficult problems. You're increasing the pool of smart people from which you draw in order to solve these difficult problems. And we can encourage that, right? We can, you can increase that, that pool. And, and there used to be a lot of really, really, you know, smart people in, in a lot of really remote places whose intelligence was lost right? There's a lot of wisdom that we've already lost in, in 
in history from things like the Library of Alexandria, who knows what kind of wisdom there we could have found there, we could have gleaned from that. Um, the idea that ancient cultures were able to take advantage of every person who was naturally gifted is irrational. Part of the reason that we see such massive growth as well in, in, in the post-industrial world is that anyone who has a natural gift has the ability to, to utilize it in ways that they could not before. People aren't destined to die in obscurity as they used to be. A mathematical genius can, can learn what from, from the masters, can, can make their voice heard, and find even more and more complex problems which they could then try and solve. Right? What could we gain from an industrial, a, a post-industrial Africa, right? Like they, they were 300 years from now, 400 years from now, who knows? Maybe it's going to take a thousand years, who cares? They should have that right, though. They should have the right to do it if they want to, right? Rights do not guarantee, right? The right to do something does not guarantee that you will, in fact, do it, right? You have the right to remain silent. Okay, but that does, most people don't use it right? against what they should, right? Most people shouldn't open their mouths because they'll generally self-incriminate. So a right, that right, means that they have the freedom to choose whether they will or will not do it. Right? The right to bear arms. You have the freedom to, to choose whether or not you want a gun. Most cultures don't have that freedom. Most, most nations, most people in most nations don't have the freedom to choose that. Right? There are some restrictions on it. Right? So it's not technically a universal right. right? You have to pass a background check. Um, so it's technically limited. But on the whole, you have that right. Excuse me. So should we, as a post-industrial world, as a digital world, entering and, and beginning to explore the fourth age of man, right, these enlightened peoples, should we look across the world and say, you know what, we need to stop anybody else from getting where we are today. We need to do everything we can to stop this from proliferating. Right? Because that's what that's what we're saying to a certain extent. We hate coal because right? it's dirty. Yes. Yes, it is. It's also cheap. And it can be mass-produced in a certain way. And there's, there's very little risk of anybody creating a coal-based weapon. Right? The coal-based, the best coal-based weapon that we have would probably be trains right so the idea that a an agricultural society could build a coal plant to power itself is probably better than trying to get them to build a nuclear plant because it decreases the incentive to enrich the uranium for the sake of self-defense um, or posturing so why shouldn't we encourage these industrial systems around the world in places that are still developing, right? So maybe they'll give me that, right? Maybe they'll give me that, but then they'll say, well, we need to, we need to cut it down ourselves, right, locally. Well, okay, first of all, you have to still take care of the lowest skilled people in your workforce. 
if their jobs are not being naturally replaced by other economic opportunities, then we need to find, we need to, to stop killing those jobs by government mandate. If it's done by social mandate, right, if there's no longer a demand for it, then there will be a demand for it in other places. Right? Generally speaking, that's, that's how the market works. As you free up labor, it'll go to other places, right? Now, this is also an immigration issue, which, which makes things complicated, right? We, if, you're, if you're importing a low-skilled labor force because they live in a pre- or industrial world uh, into a post-industrial world, then their skill set will be limited to, generally in the first few generations, the pre-industrial. And uh, again, I'm, and I'm right now throwing out all the IQ arguments because those are complicated and uh, tend to be controversial. So uh, just know that they do exist. Um, nevertheless, right? If you're trying, if you try to force the anti-industrialization of a society in the early stages of the digital age, and we are in the early stages, right? We have, e we have as long as, right? We have until the Lord returns to be digital, right? That that is a long time. We have we have plenty of time to phase in nuclear power, right? Which is the key, by the way, right? Nuclear power is the cleanest energy source of all. It's also reliable, right? Now, why is it clean? Because the battery technology is not at the level to sustain large amounts of renewable energy. So renewable energy is at the mercy of the wind, literally, and the sun, literally. Right. So if you can't store that and you can't generate it, you need to feed your power grid somehow. If you're unable to store it, you can't rely on power reserves. And in order to maintain a constant charge on your grid, a constant voltage on your grid, which you need to avoid blackouts. In order to do that, you need natural gas or coal. You need something that can be turned on and turned off very quickly. Something that can be scaled very quickly. And dirtier forms of energy production do that. The greatest advocate of renewable energy in America is natural gas. Because the more renewables you build, the more natural gas you have to have in your infrastructure. Because the infrastructure of the power grid requires that you have a reliable source of power. So in this push to build renewable energy, we're having to build more natural gas plants, right? It's a law of unintended consequences to a certain extent. But, I mean, that's generally what happened with everything, right? Why didn't, why didn't we go into nuclear? Well, because, well, what about nuclear fallout, right? First of all, Chernobyl wasn't that bad. All things considered. And it was a freak accident, right? Which, which is unlikely to happen in the future. Fukushima in Japan, right, that, that recent one, there was a tsunami, right? The, the earth itself broke that. And then again, the, the consequences weren't that bad, right? We don't have radioactive fish coming out of the, of the Pacific Ocean, right? Or we do, because everything's radioactive, right? That's the other lie, you know, secret. Everything's radioactive. Humans are radioactive. 
low, low levels of radioactivity, but, but still the case, right? When you fly, you're exposed to radiation, right? Heck, you know, with the amount of, of uh, Wi-Fi we've got floating around, right? We're getting radiation from everywhere, not just the sun. So the, the fear of nuclear power that we had causes us to need other, other reliable forms of energy. That requirement made us have to use less energy efficient, less, less, less forget energy efficient, less, less you know, green forms of energy. And so now when we're trying to put in green energy, we have to maintain those because they are at least stable, right? Because that's what the power grid is designed for. It's designed to get people power when they need it, when they want it. Um, now, part of that might be that if you really, really want to use green power, you have to be at the mercy of nature. And there are some people who, will, who would prefer that. I personally would prefer to just use nuclear power. Right? So the, the great push that we've had to move away, to move into these, these green energy sources is flawed. It is fundamentally flawed because there is an issue there, right? Now, am I denying that there are industrialists who will pollute natural waterways? No, I'm not denying it. However, we do have better means of documenting that than ever before. We have better means of tracing any pollution than ever before. We have better ways of spreading that information, of publicly shaming people than ever before in history. Well, maybe since the small town community, right? Where, where we could actually theoretically put someone out of business through online pressure because they are polluting. We technically have that power. And if we built up that infrastructure, if we encouraged that infrastructure, right? Pollution wouldn't be a huge deal, right? Now, it still is in some places. But now let's think. What kind, of, what kind of areas do people want to live in, right? Do people want to live in smog-infested areas, or do they want to live in places where there's clean air, right? They want to live in places where there's clean air. They want to live in places where they can raise their kids healthy. So any, any area, any community that can discourage pollution, will encourage people to come near, which will encourage businesses to grow, which will encourage more businesses to come there, right? Until you reach terminal mass, and then you'll have a sustained system, right? And then, and then people who like the area will stay, right? And you get this kind of cyclical thing, right? The birth and death of great cities. Places all around the, the, the country, all around the world do this, right? Cities rise and fall to a certain extent. It's all based on incentives. Um, this kind of gets back to the water level question, right? There are some people who will stick it out even if the water level is pretty close, right? Some people like to buy beachfront property, right? Uh, there are cities that are going to have to worry about how to do that in their communities, do I think that we should be spending massive amounts? Of, do I think that we should be forcibly extracting money from the general population in order to pay coastal cities 
to support their efforts to maintain themselves? I would say no. I would say the states should do that independently. Right? I think if New York wants to tax its own citizens to pay for a levy, that's fine. Right? If some idiots in Louisiana want to keep living below the water level, okay, fine. Be my guest, but just don't take my money to do that. If you, if you can convince me that what you're doing is the right thing, I'll give it to you, right? If you, th- you convince me it's important, but I would just say move, right? That's the alternative. Just move. Sure, maybe you've lived there for, for a few generations, right? But this is what people have done for thousands of years. When the environment changes, you move, right? So I had a uh, co-worker in Portland who once told me, you know, one of the consequences of climate change was that they were no longer able to grow some a certain type of grape in France, right? That 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 was just going to go extinct. And I looked him in the eye and said, well, "Okay, fantastic. I look forward to tasting the English vintage because England's going to get a little bit warmer, so they can grow those grapes there. And the French the French vintage will become, you know, a fine and exquisite thing. And somebody will build a greenhouse where they're able to do it in a controlled environment, and they'll be able to sell a really really expensive wine." And, the, and industry will prevail. And maybe we'll get, I don't know, French olives or something. Things change. The world changes. Tough it up. I mean, come on. How, how spoiled are we if, we if we think we have the power to control these things? If we think we have the right to spend immense amounts of capital on our own consciences because we are so embarrassed by the fact that we are so wealthy that we are so blessed that we have to find ways of self-flagellating of self-punishing right we have to find it seems that 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 our culture is insistent on punishing themselves for their own affluence as though they are somehow to blame for it. Well, let me tell you, bucko, you have the, you have the full right to throw it away. But, but do it for yourself, not for me. Right? You do not have the right to throw my affluence away from me. You have the right to throw your own away. You're free to feel free to go down to Mexico, right? lower, the lower parts of Oaxaca. Right? Go to Venezuela. Live in, live in a socialist country if you really want to. Right? Or, or move to Hungary, move to India, move to China. Right? Oddly enough, a lot of these places actually won't accept you. Right? Um, that's one of the beauties of, a, of the world, of the country we live in here in America. It's a, it's a very welcoming country where most people can come. As long as you, you want to be free, want to be prosperous, want to contribute to our society, come on in. Love to have you. Come buy a gun. Have a beer. Come to church, right? It's a, it's a fantastic, beautiful country built on the backs of, of many hardworking people and, and maintained by the brilliance of the many people who live here still. But it's, it's still fading. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go through some tough times, right? We can see them. We can see it coming. It's right on the edge, right on the border, and we're afraid of it, right? 
And yet we're simultaneously afraid of being too affluent. And so we're driving ourselves further down the precipice. Right? We, we, we want to go backwards with none of the realization of the consequences that that brings. Right? The step down from where we are at is not into some digital, some eco-friendly utopia. It's the industrial world. It's smog. Right? Or even worse, it is massive amounts of disease coming from the agricultural society that would then be necessary to sustain whatever culture remains. Right? And, and don't tell me that that's good for the environment. So there's so many there's so many things to cover with this. There are so there's such fervor in these people who worship their own their own ability who who worship self-hatred and their own their belief that they have the power to control the planet to control the waves, right? They worship it. I mean, this might very well be Poseidon. I don't know. I'd have to look into it more, but, but they, they are obsessed with their own ideas on how to, how to form the world, how to shape it. And they're insistent that, that you buy into it as well, right? They're very militant. I do believe the climate is changing. That's what climates do. They change. That's what humans do. They change climates. That's a good thing. Why? Because in our great work of changing the climate, we have brought about the ability to have more humans, to have more people, to, to spread prosperity, freedom, and the good news of Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That's a great thing. That is a good thing. Would that the Amazon were completely leveled if it were replaced by good Christian suburbs. You know, a sprawling countryside of, of farms and you know, maybe, maybe a, few, uh, a few major metropolitan areas here and there with churches replete across the countryside. And in every home, a garden, and in every yard, a tree. So every, every household would have one tree to their own name. And yeah, there would be fewer trees, but there'd be more people. And I think that's a little more important. I happen to believe that people are, are, are a good thing. They're not good, fundamentally, right? People aren't good. But I believe that having people is a good thing. right? And... Generally, economically, it happens to be true that economically, people are good. The more you have, the more you can do. Excuse me as I move my mouse around. So, I, I really don't care if some subspecies of Amazonian lizard goes extinct. And, and if we're deforesting the Amazon. So long as we are allowed, so as long as we're helping our neighbor, as long as we're serving our neighbor, I would say that's still a good thing. There's much good to be gleaned from that nut still. 
And I would fight to maintain that good. I would fight to sustain it and build it and grow it. Because I'd say that's a good thing. And I think that's where the real rubber hits the road with this argument. What do you truly value? What do you really think is most important? I would, I would bet that, well, evidence would show that most f- environmental fundamentalists have very few children. Most of them believe that children are bad for the environment. So why would you have them, right? Well, maybe that's the case. But maybe the more we, we grow, right, the more that different parts of the world are able to industrialize and then post-industrialize. Maybe we'll find a way to grow new species of plant. Maybe different styles of environments will become niche in different areas. You might just grow a palm tree in your backyard because you're suddenly able to mimic that environment because of some very cheap technology. Who knows? But I don't think it comes down to the need for technology. I think it comes down to the value of human life. That human life is more valuable. Human prosperity, right? The the ability of of someone in sub-Saharan Africa to live long enough to, to support their family and so that and, and to see None of their children die from sickness or poverty or starvation, right? The ability, the, the, the ability for every single person on, on, on the greatest, the, well, one of the largest continents, right? I don't know between, I mean, Europe and Asia is, you know, technically the big one, right? But the amount of the number of people there, right? The amount of humans there who who are living in such poor conditions, right? And they're not they're not just awful. I mean, it's it's not the same as as Europe was, right? It is it is different culturally. It's different environmentally. It's different, right? And the fact that they're living side by side with industrial and post industrial cultures is is a challenge that we're going to have to meet. But until I can be confident that the actions that we are doing on a federal scale are, in, are generally focused towards pro- the prosperity of these people around the world and secondarily have the effect of being provably beneficial towards the environment, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying it. I'm sorry. I am not buying that it is imperative that we stop a four degree increase Fahrenheit, right? I don't think it's that important. In fact, I think it's more important that we spend that trillion dollars annually on something else entirely. I'd say that that's probably going to be pretty valuable. That's a lot of money that could go into a lot of different things. 
And there are a lot of more things that are much, much more important than four degrees. Four degrees. Gee whiz. That's not that bad. Right? See, and then we get the idea, oh, we have extreme weather. Right? Oh, the hurricanes are the largest on record. Well, probably, because the records are only about 150 years old. Who knows what they were like 2,000 years ago? We don't. There could have been massive civilizations on the North American continent that were wiped out by super tornadoes, for all we know. For all we know. We don't know. We can't know. right? And, and the, the tornadoes just took everything away, and then there were massive floods that, that took everything else away. And you know, and, and that's, that's why nobody has any evidence of the Mormon cultures that were there in America that, yeah, Mormons are weird and crazy. But, you know, that's the joke, right? We can't know that this is actually the largest in history. We can't know that, um, I don't know, when ice was receding away from the equatorial regions and away from the, you know, the tropics, when ice was pulling back through Montana, forming Glacier National Park and, and leaving behind glaciers, right? When this was happening, it was weather was probably a little different. And people survived. People thrived in that warming. They didn't have to worry about the fact that the earth was getting warmer and their lives were going to be destroyed. They endured. Now, will there be a shift? Yes. Is the solution more regulation and more restrictions? No. No, you, you, you idiots. Now, I'm, you know, not you, listener, right? You're, you're, you're listening, right? But the, the foolishness of thinking that by restricting things more, we will give the power of people to survive these hardships it is, is so great that it baffles the mind. That, that foolishness is ridiculous. Instead of saying, hey, you know what? I'm sorry. If, if your area is going to get flooded, you either have to figure out how to, in, how to get around it or you have to move. And, and find a home elsewhere. Right? Yeah, that's, that's a hard thing to say. But are you going to, do you think that you have the ability by throwing money at the problem to make it go away? If the Earth's climate wants to change, it will change. When Krakatoa exploded... Krakatoa. Krakatoa was a, a volcanic island in Indonesia. And the whole island was basically built around this volcano. Um, about 150 years ago now, it exploded. The island itself exploded, right? This volcano sending tsunamis across this little gap between the Indonesian islands. Massively destructive tsunamis. Uh, and the ash entered the stratosphere and circled the globe. And the sunsets in England were, were changed for, I think, a month because of this volcanic explosion. Also happened to cool the, cool the earth, right? Simultaneously, right? Volcanic eruptions are actually very uh, beneficial for lowering earth's temperatures. There was a singular volcanic eruption in the 1990s that eliminated or, or counteracted the warming over the previous hundred years because the ash got into the stratosphere, the, or got into the upper atmosphere, and 
the sulfur content in the ash was able to block out more of the sun's rays than other compounds that occur naturally in the atmosphere. And that blockage allowed the Earth's temperature to decrease significantly, right? Which means if you really want to solve the problem, what you need to do is blow up a bunch of volcanoes and then we'll end the global warming immediately. Just like that. Problem solved. This is actually the idea proposed by the author of Freakonomics, right? A, a radical solution to solve the real problem. But of course, we don't want to solve the real problem. We want climate scientists like being in the in in the forefront, and I understand it's awesome, right? I understand that it's that it's valuable, but more importantly, there are, is an entire group psychology among a a certain part of of post-industrial societies that believes that man is evil, and and the way he must be punished is by throwing his affluence further because it worked so well the first time that we were so good at spending our money in the past that we have caused catastrophic destruction of the earth and that the solution is we throw more money at it. Right. Right. Okay. Okay, sure. Right? And like I said, with nuclear power, a lot of the times they throw away the best solution. They smear it. And, and it's not good. Right? There's a lot of, ultimately, business as usual will probably be better. Because here's the deep secret. People like the planet. Nobody actively hates Earth. There are very few people. There's probably a few nut jobs. Most people like the great outdoors in some form or another. A lot, so a lot of people like living in cities. They like living away from it, but they like their trees. I've yet to meet a person who hates a single tree, right? Who, who wants absolutely no trees. That, that, that person doesn't really exist. So most people are inclined to do that. And if we allow people the freedom to do it, they generally will. Are there going to be some issues with pollution? Yes. Yes, but, but we have systems in place right? Allow your local community to fight that as best you can. And if you can't, reach out to the global community. There was a very, very popular, excuse me, I'm moving again. This is for you, Kevin, in case there's any weird noises um, as I adjust my, my seating. There was a, a popular trend this year, this summer, called the trash tag, right? Where you'd go pick up trash and you'd post before and after pictures of the place you picked up trash from, like a beach or a community park. And you'd post a picture of the giant bag of trash that you'd picked up. And it turns out that was actually a, a massively successful system to get people to do it. Why? Because they got social media rewards, right? They got rewards from this, this modern system of community, right? The modern community is the digital community and they were given praise in this community for cleaning up the environment in their area that was incredibly helpful that was incredibly helpful. I, I have yet to see actual statistics mostly because i haven't looked them up 
But I'd say that's probably more effective than, than most methods that we have. Right? Volunteers doing good work because they, they wanted to do it. And promoting that idea that that was a good idea, that that was something that got you praise. That's, that's how it works. That's how freedom works, right? And how many people are going to want to throw their garbage on the ground now after something like that? Well, they've seen somebody else is going to have to pick it up, right? Why not beat them to it? There's a, there's a psychological idea that trash goes in a bag that comes with that kind of thing, right? Maybe, okay, maybe you got to make the argument. Well, sorry, Kevin. Moving again. Um, you could make the argument, well, if they know somebody else is going to pick it up eventually, why not just throw it on the ground? Yeah, but psychologically, they are at least of the mind that this needs to go in a trash bag anyway. And if there's a trash bag right there, they'll do it. Um, so this happened completely naturally. People wanted to clean up their communities and they did so. And that's a fantastic thing. And I don't see why this can't apply to other areas of the environment, right? People wanted to preserve a forest, so they did it. So they bought it. They bought the forest, right? You could do that. You could crowdfund the purchase of a forest if you wanted to, or, or a national park. You could have entire groups of people volunteering themselves on crowdfunded systems to support a national park that then requires absolutely no taxes. Right? These, these systems are in place. Am I saying that there's no need for government? Well, no, we've got, other, we've got other issues, but I'm saying environmentally, it is unnecessary. There are, it is not an absolute necessity that we take money from people and spend it on groups that believe they are improving the health and wellness of the planet, even when their models have consistently been shown not to work, and the money that we spend there could actually be spent on improving the lives of people around the globe. Or, better yet, in our communities. Actually helping our own people. That's where my issue lies. Now, the other thing I would argue, right? And this is, this is I'll end it with this, because this is kind of a crazy idea. We've seen an increase in global temperatures over the past hundred years, a general trend upwards. And me, as an electrical engineer, I'm looking at this and thinking, well, maybe, maybe there's a better explanation for this, right? Um, when you have rain clouds, it's generally going to block out sunlight, so you're going to get cooler temperatures. When you don't, you know, so warm temperatures generally build up precipitation, which builds up clouds, which tends to end the cooling effect because of um, the ability to block out things. And the idea of a greenhouse effect is that certain gases in the atmosphere are actually going to trap that heat so that it doesn't get reflected away from the earth, right? But there should be some inherent system that's, that's keeping the energy out of the planet, right? Because that's all that warming is, right? Heat is energy. So global warming is the idea that the total amount of energy in the earth has increased steadily over the past, well, let's, let's just do the past 25 years, right? The amount of energy in the atmosphere 
has increased, right? Because this is this is what's actually I mean, we're not we're not necessarily digging down six feet under and measuring the temperature there because that's that's relatively consistent. So it would be water and air. And what we found is that the amount of energy in these year-round has increased. That's all temperature is, right? I'm building up an argument here. Okay. Have Has anything changed in the past 20 years that would potentially account for this? That you know, have, we, have we been altering the amount of energy that, that is moving through the atmosphere? Right? Maybe it's not just carbon dioxide. If we shut off all, and I mean all, electronic or electromagnetic waves, right? Electro if we shut off all electromagnetic waves on Earth for an entire year, what would happen? I don't know. And I don't think we ever will know. Because the economic impact of that would be dramatic and, and drastic and ridiculous. But I do know that when you when you try and transmit an electromagnetic wave, a radio wave, right? Let's use the word radio. When you try to transmit a radio wave over a long distance, you have a lot of loss, right? It's one of the great problems with transmission is, is it, the, the wave loses energy. But there is a fundamental principle in thermodynamics, right? Or, or nature, right? There's a thermodynamic principle. You cannot create energy and you can't destroy it. So the energy isn't destroyed, it is transferred. Energy from radio waves is lost in that it is transferred into the atmosphere. It is absorbed by the atmosphere. And so in order to get something to, in order to get a wave to transfer across a large distance, you're going to have some losses in the atmosphere and you have to increase the power of the wave to get it to a sufficient strength where it can be received. Now, this is why you have radio towers all across the country is you have to constantly refresh the signal. You have to constantly have a, a some, something that sends out this signal. And it's why when you get weather events, it can mess with reception or it used to, right? We've changed the frequencies on which we work because certain frequencies, right? right? If you send a, a more... If you send a signal more times per second, it's going to be more resistant to that kind of loss. So you can you can change the the energy of the system by doing that, or you can just make it stronger, right? You can make it a bigger a bigger wave, so that when it gets there, if it's just a tiny little wave, you can still see it, right? Imagine this is water, right? A lot of a lot of waves, if they hit a rock, you know, what or if they not a rock. If you hit like a, in a pond and you send out a lot of ripples, some of those ripples will go around the little objects in the pond. They'll go around the rock or they'll go around a lily pad. If you have it, if you're, you know, dropping a lot of rocks into a thing or, or, or if you have a leaky faucet into a pool of water, um, the waves will go around it. So you'll eventually get through those obstacles. Or what you could do is you could just have a, a wave that goes over, right? That goes through. But that's a lot of that's a lot of lost energy. That's a lot of lost energy, and and maybe each individual wave is a drop in the bucket. But but maybe I'm I'm just just curious. If you aggregate the entire amount of radio, television, 
mobile communications, mobile internet, satellite internet, general satellite communications. If you, those waves being sent through the atmosphere, through the air, what's, what's the cumulative effect of that? I don't know. I don't know. But we have a lot of those going on. They honestly, it, it affects our it affects our minds in ways we can't even understand. It affects our bodies, right? Why do you think we got so much cancer? Gee whiz, radiation is more common now than it ever has been in human history. Not just X-rays and and air air, you know, air travel, right? But just the general pervasiveness of different electromagnetic waves, and that's energy. That is that is in and of itself energy. Don't, please do not take this, right? Big red flag. Do not take this as scientific gospel. It's a guy with a microphone and an internet connection making a thesis statement about his hypothesis that perhaps the proliferation of electromagnetic communication around the world, but particularly in the fourth era civilizations is possibly the greatest detriment to the natural environment of all possible causes. That's my hypothesis. It's the worst. That as much as we like to look back at old technologies, oh, look at coal, oh, it's so bad, right? Oh, look at cow dung, cow, cow farts. They're so bad for the environment. Maybe it's us, in the, in, in, not in the way that we're, we're looking at it. Maybe it's the fact that we've built an entirely new way of messing with the ecosystem. Maybe that's what's going on. Maybe, maybe what we need is a little bit less radical ideology and a little more introspection maybe a little bit less money, a little bit less worrying about everyone out there, and maybe we should just spend some time worrying about our own areas, worrying about our own people, starting our own families, right? Not being afraid of having kids just because somewhere on earth things are bad. Instead, maybe we should sit back, count our blessings, and think about how we can best steward God's creation. Because maybe that's, maybe that's the best we can do. And maybe if we, if we work together at that, at spending time cleaning up garbage on our local streets, spending time running our own garden, or starting a community garden, maybe if we find time to spending the great outdoors and teaching our children to appreciate that, going on hikes in nature, or maybe spending nights out underneath the stars. Maybe if we spent a little less time worrying about everyone else and spent a little more time actually looking at nature, we wouldn't have to worry so much about whether the world was going to end. Maybe the best thing is to do what... what What's, what's attributed to Martin Luther, right? What did he say? 
He said if he knew the world was going to end tomorrow, he'd go out and plant a tree. Because nature in and of itself is a gift. It's a gift we've corrupted with sin, yes. But it is a gift of God that we ought to take care of. We ought to nurture and cherish. But it's not something we ever have control over, ultimately. We can't, we can't save the planet. Because ultimately we are responsible for its destruction. Yes, they're right on that regard. Through one man came sin, and through sin came death. Adam is responsible for the fact that all things on earth die. And as such, man is responsible for the destruction of the environment and the corruption of the human will. But it is out of our control, right? Sinful, fallen people, right? It is out of our control to save it, and ultimately we don't have to worry about that, right? I'm getting theological here. Because we don't look forward. Our hope is not here on this earth. It's for the new heavens and the new earth. This, this earth will pass away. It'll be cleansed with fire. And thank goodness, because that way all of the destruction that we have wrought will be destroyed. All the works of man will be, will be gone. All the works of sin will be destroyed. But there will be a new heavens and a new earth. A new garden for us to tend. For us to grow some, some potatoes and avocados and apples and tangerines and walnuts, right? Or maybe something brand new. But there will be, there will be a place, and, and until that comes, we ought to take care of what we have. But more importantly, we ought to look out for all the needs of our neighbors, not just ensuring that he has a clean and healthy world to raise his children and to live himself. Right? Not just ensuring that we are stewards of the world that our neighbors live in, but also making sure that he has the ability to live, the economy to do so, and that he knows that we are there to support those things. His livelihood his body, and his family more than condemn him for trying to build a better life. I think that as a Christian, we, we need to ensure that our priorities are straight. And we should not hate those who are radical environmentalists. But in love... We ought to ask their help in maintaining 
our local environments and hopefully build in them an appreciation for what we do have and reach out to them with the idea that even though the earth is fallen and, and destroyed, that there is a hope. There's a hope beyond the horizon, beyond the edges of the universe, which can be found, a hope which can be found in a church every Sunday. I had a confession that I make every week, and I try to make every day. I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come.